Let's pray together. Father, we just uh, we thank you for even the beauty of this day, even though it's so cold. It uh, just reminds us as you as our creator. And, and that song, I'm just reminded of how precious was that day that I first believed. And I just pray that we can have that freshness to our faith every single day for the rest of our lives. And so I pray that you bless us today with a word that will inspire us and keep us close to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Young seated. Morning, y'all. Uh, it was uh, sometime this last fall, I was uh, in the middle of a message up here, and I was struggling, as I always do, um, trying to articulate some esoteric part of the Christian faith. And in the middle of that message, I had this epiphany, and I said, oh, you know, it'd be really cool. It'd be really cool if we do a series about all the things that the stuff that the Bible teaches that really we know very little about. So boom, here we are in starting a series about all the stuff we have no stinking clue about, we have no answers for, except for the little bit that the Bible clues us in uh, to. So uh, it reminds me of, (laughs) it reminds me of, you know, one of the things that that really bugs me about the church is that, and a lot of things bug me about the church, but that scholars can write volumes uh, about these things and that, you know, pastors will preach things as if they know, like they know. Somehow they've got a connection and they know all of the stuff that there's no way to know. And churches split and people argue about the craziest things. And you go, no. Like, the truth is that nobody can really know very much about the stuff that we're talking about. Uh, Last Easter, I uh, shared with you one of my favorite quotes um, from a guy by the name of Donald Rumsfeld. And I felt like it was really appropriate to revisit that quote today. And you may remember he was the Secretary of Defense back in the early 2000s under George W. Bush. And he was known for being one of those politicians who was like really kind of slippery. And whenever he was asked the difficult questions, he was like the master of saying things in such a way that nobody knew what the heck he was talking about. And literally, like after he was done with the press conference, people would go, what did he say? What did that mean? Well, you may remember one of his most famous quotes uh, was when he was asked in a news briefing about the lack of evidence related to the WMDs, the weapons of mass destruction that became so controversial. And Donald Rumsfeld replied with the following quote. He says this, There are known knowns. These are the things we know that we know. We also know that there are known unknowns. That is to say that these are the things that we know, we don't know. But there are also the unknown unknowns. These are the things we don't know, we don't know. Now, as crazy as it sounds, and I'm sure that this was not his intention, this is a very profound theological statement that now I'm basing a second message on. (laughs) If it gives you any indication... Uh, But it actually gives us a great framework for the Christian worldview, because in the Christian faith, there are known knowns, right? 
There are things that are as clear to us, and we know them like we know right from wrong. These are the things we preach about every Sunday. We'll preach about forgiveness. We'll preach about grace. We'll preach about the death of Jesus or whatever. These are the things that are the known knowns that we have such clarity about in the Christian faith. We base everything on these things. But then there are the known unknowns. These are the things that we know about, but the truth is we know very little about. We really have no idea. And then, of course, there are the unknown unknowns. And these are the wild cards. These are the things that we don't know that we don't know. And probably it's best that we don't even know. So in this series, we're going to focus in on the known unknowns. Because there are things that we believe as Christians that are taught to us in the Bible that makes them known to us. But really, the the big picture of them we can get, but the details a full understanding, a full comprehension of these things are unknown to us because we don't have enough information to build a definition and picture of exactly what that really means. And so in this series, we're going to look at topics like next week I'm going to speak on the presence of evil and and Satan. Uh, We're going to speak on the Trinity. Try to get your hands around that one. Uh, Creation and how that whole thing happened. The Holy Spirit and then today... We're going to focus in on one aspect of when the world ends, and that is this thing called the rapture. The second coming of Jesus. For hundreds of years, people have been trying to determine the exact dates and times when the world is going to come to an end and Jesus is going to come back again. And to that, I have to say just one thing. You have better odds of winning the Powerball last night than determining the exact dates and times of when Jesus is going to return. And Jesus himself, in the Gospel of Matthew, says this. This is Jesus speaking. But about that day, or hour, nobody knows. Not the angels in heaven, not the Son, not Jesus himself, only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, at the second coming of Jesus Christ. They knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away, and that is how it will be with the coming of Jesus. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be working with a hand mill. One will be taken, and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not let that house be broken into. So you also, you also must be ready. Because Jesus will come, and he will come at an hour when you don't expect him. So the story of Jesus goes like this, right? Son of God, 
born virgin birth. Jesus was the Son of God. He lived among us for some 30, 33 years. He did his ministry for three years. He was killed on a cross. He rose from the dead. And after he rose from the dead, right, we have an eyewitness account from the disciples that he was here for 40 days, spent time among the disciples and the followers of Jesus. And after that time, it says that he ascended into heaven. And apparently, as the Bible describes it, Jesus was like standing there, shooting the breeze with the disciples, and all of a sudden he starts levitating off the earth. He starts kind of floating up into the sky until eventually he disappears up into the clouds. And in, the, in Acts chapter 1, it says, and as the disciples were standing there, they were straining their eyes to see him. You can kind of just imagine them following along, trying to see him. All of a sudden, like, Two white-robed men suddenly show up there among them, and they say, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring at the sky? Well, I'll tell you why you're staring at the sky. Jesus just, like, floated out of here. But he says, Jesus has been taken away from you into heaven, and someday, just as you saw him go, he will return. Now, while there's lots of passages before this that allude to the second coming of Jesus Christ, this is really the first time that people can get it, right? This is really the first kind of solidifying statement that says this is the promise that Jesus Christ is coming back, that there will be a second coming. And for more than 2,000 years, Everyone has been waiting for his return because when, we, when he returns, we have this promise that on that day there will be this rapture thing that occurs. That rather than have to go through the whole death thing, that we will be taken up into the sky just like Jesus was, which sounds like a heck of a lot more fun than dying, doesn't it? And so you can imagine why people are trying to pinpoint the exact date, and time so that they too can be included in the rapture. Let me just ask you all a few questions. Um, and I'm going to ask for a show of hands, which I don't normally do, but I'm just kind of curious about this. And there's no right or wrong, so there's no embarrassment or anything. But how many of you believe that someday Jesus will return and it'll be like a physical return where Jesus is coming back? How many of you kind of believe that? Okay. How many of you know what I'm talking about when I use the word rapture? Really? That's just shocking. And how many of you believe that you personally someday will be raptured? Mm-hmm. Did you play the Powerball last night? <laughs> so all of us have a different view of the rapture, but I guess the common denominator would be that we all have one vision of people who are, like, flying through the air, right? Now, I'm a pastor's kid, so I was raised on this whole thing, this whole idea from a very young age, this whole rapture thing. Scared the living daylights out of me, you know, and revivals were crazy. I was crying and mauling it. But I used to imagine the rapture to be very much like a TV show that I used to watch in black and white as a kid called The Flying Nun. Did you ever see that? <laughs> So this is kind of how I envisioned us kind of all kind of just, you know, floating, kind of doing the nun on the cloud thing. 
Sally Field was at her prime, you know, in this time. Most of you probably have no idea what this show is, but I'll live in the past. Uh, But, you know, the reason why I think it's such a difficult concept for us is primarily because the whole theology of the rapture is based on just a few small verses in the Bible. And most of them, most of the theology of the rapture is based on a few verses in the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians, and it gives us just enough information to make us dangerous. In fact, it may surprise you to know that the word rapture never appears in the Bible. Never. The term rapture itself comes from the Latin version of 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to read it in a minute, but when 1 Thessalonians uses the phrase caught up, translated into Latin, that is rapturo, and we get our English word rapture. I should really be a linguist or something. So according to this scripture, the Christians living at the time during the second coming of Jesus Christ will meet him in the air or be raptured. This is what Jesus is referring to in this passage that I read just a few minutes ago when he says, this is how it'll be with the coming of the Son of Man or the coming of Jesus Christ. Two men will be in a field. One will be taken, the other left. Scary stuff, right? I mean, it literally means you could be hanging out, watching the Bears game, drinking a beer, and all of a sudden, boom, there goes Joe. (laughs) And it's probably not a good sign if you're still sitting there. But, you know, from this, like, you know, books have been written, this whole Left Behind phenomenon series and and TV shows and movies all about this idea of the rapture. But from these few verses has come volumes of theological works written by scholars and pastors who have spent their lives studying the, 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 the rapture and the second coming. And scholars have argue, argue bitterly over people's belief about what's going to happen in the end times. The book of Revelation, for instance, makes a, a, a reference to that there being this thousand-year period, and they argue whether the rapture is going to be before the thousand years or after the thousand years. Really, who cares? Seriously. So we've taken a view, just to get down to a philosophical, theological view about the kind of church that you're part of here, is that we take a theological view, a very strong view that says we have to believe this one thing. That we are saved by the grace of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we're saved. And we believe that because we believe that Jesus died on a cross and as a result of his dying on the cross, we can now receive forgiveness, which now allows us to meet the entrance requirement to get into heaven, which is to be perfect. And the only way to be perfect, because I promise you you're not perfect, no matter how much you think you are, is through forgiveness. That as far as the east is from the west, Jesus has removed our sin from us, leaving us perfect, right? Which allows us entrance into heaven. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead and conquered death. And so therefore, we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. Now, after that, there's a whole lot of theology out there that has a whole lot of gray areas and a whole lot of variety of opinions, and we're not a church that's going to draw a line in the sand and say, okay, you need to believe this or you need to believe that. You need to believe that 
you know, that the rapture is going to occur before or after the thousand years. We really don't care about that. Like, we'll know when we know. And so I think that the reason why we take this approach is because we consider them to be known unknowns, right? It's things that the Bible teaches, but we don't have great clarity about the details of those things. And the rapture is one of those areas. There's a variety of opinions, and we don't take a position on who's right or who's wrong about it. We just look at the information that we have available to us. And so the information that we have available to us is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and verses 13 through 15 is where it starts. And um, the Apostle Paul is teaching here, and he says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, this is important because the next few verses he's going to get into the whole rapture thing. But he doesn't say, hey, listen up, because I'm going to build for you a framework and a theology of the rapture, does he? He says, I'm telling you these things, why? Because there are people in the church who are grieving. They have lost people that they love. And he says, I don't want you to have no hope like those people who don't believe in Jesus. I want you to understand that you can have hope of seeing your loved ones again because of what we see, what we believe is going to happen. And so as a result of that, he encourages them. And he says this in verse 15, he says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So first of all, when Paul speaks to those Christians about those Christians who have died, he refers to them as those who have fallen asleep. Right? And this phrase is uniquely used in the early church in an effort to make the point that Christians are not permanently dead. That when you die, it's not lights out forever, that it's a temporary state. It's more like they are temporarily asleep. And when Jesus comes again, they will be awakened and risen. In fact, best I can figure, the first time we see this phrase in the New Testament is when Jesus says to his disciples this. He says, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'm going to wake him up. And as you may know, at this point, this is where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, right? So we have a very clear understanding of what he's referring to. Well, Paul goes on and he says, We who are still alive in Christ at the second coming will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now again... He's trying to make a point that you don't have to grieve for your lost ones. So I don't think he's trying to make it so that there's some type of a chronological order here to exactly what's going to happen. But it's interesting that Paul uses the word we, isn't it? Like he throws himself in the rapture bucket, right? So what I have to say about that is if the Apostle Paul, who I'd considered to be a connected guy, doesn't have a clue about when the rapture is going to happen, I don't think we have a shot at it. Well, He says, we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So that tells me that if if they are not going to precede those who have fallen asleep, something's going to happen to those people who have died. 
right? Something's going to occur. And at that moment, the event that we're talking about is the rapture. And so he goes on in uh, verses 16 through 18, and he says this, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. So he begins to give us a description of exactly what the second coming, the rapture, looks like. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So again, he ends with this encouragement saying, I know you people have been grieving. I know you people have experienced loss of people you love, but be encouraged because this stuff is going to happen. So now Paul begins to lay out the known knowns, right? According to Paul, these are the known knowns of the second coming of Jesus Christ. First of all, the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, is going to come down out of heaven. Jesus will return for his people. This will be the second coming. And it was the same way that it was promised 2,000 years ago by the angel that Jesus will come back in the same way that he left. But he will come back. And that's what Paul begins to describe, that Jesus is kind of coming down in the same way that he left. Now, my question is, how are we really going to know? Like, A, is Jesus, like, big enough that we can see him? Like, coming down out of the heavens, is it like a little star, shooting star? Or what's that, like, going to be like? Um, are we going to recognize him? You know, in the first time that Jesus came, nobody really recognized him. You know, people built faith over time, but nobody really knew it was Jesus. Are we going to be able to figure that out? Can somebody on the other side of the globe, say, in China see Jesus coming down out of the heavens at the exact time that we in Chicago can see him? We don't know. But the Apostle Paul certainly implies that everybody's going to know at the exact same time and nobody's going to miss it because he says three things are going to happen. Right? He says, first of all, he's coming with a loud command. And the word that's used there is like a commander of a military army. That Jesus is coming down and he's going to shoot out a command where the masses can understand exactly what's going to happen. My guess is the command is that he's calling people to him. The second is you hear the voice of an archangel. Now this is interesting because there's only three or four times in the entire Bible that actually mentions an archangel, which is kind of the big boss of all the angels, right? And a couple places it refers to the archangel as being named as Michael. And um, the... This is like, you know, the big dog. But again, it creates the, the known unknown. Like, we know that there are angels, but what are the angels doing when they're not providing security detail for Jesus when he is descending out of heaven? Like, what's the point of it all? And there's other passages like that that don't have some clarity, but they kind of give us an indication of what's going on there. And then there's going to be a sounding of a trumpet, call of God. And, you know, I'm not necessarily a big fan of trumpets, but... You know, I think that they were key in sounding for a beginning of a feast or an event. Certainly, it was used back then. A trumpet was used to sound an alarm to charge into a time of war. 
So in just in case you missed the loud command from Jesus and the voice of the archangel, there are trumpets that will be there, and it's all going to be happening. And I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, you know, loud enough to raise the dead, but it certainly seems like that's the case here because the first thing that he says is that the dead in Christ will rise first. And all of this is going to happen, and somehow, you know, people are going to raise from the dead. Now, this, again, is another known unknown. So are we talking about actual bodies popping up out of the graves, like some Michael Jackson thriller video or something? I don't know. Like, there seems to be good precedent when you look at the fact that when Jesus died, that people came out of the graves, they were wandering around the streets, people, and talked to people that they... They knew Jesus himself had a bodily resurrection, so it certainly seems to be a precedent that there's a bodily resurrection, but we don't know. We have no idea. But whatever it is, it certainly implies that in this moment, something will happen where the dead will rise and we will be transformed into our final state of being. And the point is, ain't no grave can hold us down. Now, this is where kind of the fun begins, because he says, after that, we who are still alive, are, who are left behind, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we who are believers in Jesus Christ, who are alive at the time of the rapture, that we, along with all of the previously dead people, will Go up into the air and be raptured. That phrase that he uses there, caught up, is what we referred to earlier, the rapturo, the Latin version. But it refers that people will be drawn to him, will be caught up into him. And this is where the whole uh, gospel song, I'll fly away, comes from, right? On that day, I'll fly away. Um, Don't make me sing it now. (laughs) Well, in verse 17, finally he gets to the point of it all, right? At the end, he says this. We will, in the end, then, be with the Lord always. When you look at the strict definition of heaven and hell, which we know very little about, the most pristine definition of heaven and hell is this. One of those places is the place where God is and will be for the rest of eternity. And the other place is the place where God is not and will not be for the rest of eternity. And the known known for me is I want to be in the place where God is. All of that sounds like pretty spectacular stuff, doesn't it? I mean, it just sounds crazy. And I have to admit, it would be fun to be alive in that moment and to witness the whole thing and I mean, certainly being raptured up and ascending into heaven sounds a whole lot more fun than dying, right? But one of the most important things to remember, I think, in this type of a situation, this type of a teaching, is this is a metaphysical event. It is beyond the physical, right? It is supernatural, beyond the natural. And so while we're sitting here trying to form a physical idea and image in our heads... This goes way beyond the three dimensions of our world that we can't even comprehend. And our most grandiose idea 
of what this will look like will not even scratch the surface of what the truth is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul goes on in First Thessalonians in chapter 5, and he goes on in verses 1 and 2, and he says this, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I think there are two important takeaways for us from this whole thing. The first of all, that there is a known unknown, and it is okay not to know. We do not know when Jesus is coming back. And even though we've kind of got this touch of a little vision of it, we don't even know the details about what exactly is going to happen, nor will we ever know until that day. But there are so many people who are so caught up in the whole end times thing and reading the signs and, you know, they just have this idea that they're obsessed with, you know, determining when the end times are going to occur. In my 18 years of ministry here at Westridge, I've had probably one person a year tell me they've figured it out. And I need to warn everybody. But the bottom line is, we will not know until he comes. It reminds me of this thing that my grandfather used to have in his yard. Um, He used to have this piece of wood. He lived in a town of 120 people or something down in Southern Illinois. And he had this piece of wood, and from that wood was a a little rope dangling from it, and it said weather forecaster. Anybody ever see one of those? So when I was a kid, I said, Grandpa, how can you possibly, like, forecast the weather from this little piece of rope dangling from this piece of wood? He said, well, it's simple. He said, when that, thing is like, when that thing is like blowing back and forth like this, he says, it's real windy. <laughs> he said, when that thing's all wet, it's raining. He said, when it's frozen stiff, you know it's cold. And he says, and then when all of a sudden it disappears and it's gone, and he pauses, and I'm like a kid going, yeah, what? He goes, he said, well, you just flat out of luck because a tornado is fixing to come and suck you right out of here. <laughs> He always thought he was pretty funny. But that's a little bit like what the rapture is going to be like. Because by the time you figure it out, it's too late and Jesus is just fixing to suck you right out of here. (laughs) We don't know. And it's okay. There's a lot of things that we have to live with in the Christian faith that we don't know. And we don't have to feel like we have to have an answer for everything. The second thing, and this is what I think is the most important takeaway because we don't know he's coming back. We need to be ready, right? We have to be ready. Because Paul makes it very clear in this verse that not everyone will be raptured. There will be those people who have made a decision not to be with Jesus in this life, who by default have made them the decision that they will not be with Jesus in the next, right? Or as Jesus put it, two people walking down the road, one will be taken and the other will be left behind. When Jesus comes back, the whole world will look upon his face at the same time. I do believe that. And some people will look upon the face of Jesus in that moment and they will smile because this is what they've been waiting for all their lives. And they know they're ready. 
But there will be those people who will look upon the face of Jesus in that moment and they will be afraid. Because they know they've made the wrong choice. To me, it is absolutely irrelevant whether or not I live to see the rapture. Don't get me wrong. I think it would be a blast. But the bottom line is this. There will come a day when our life will come to an end. And we will stand there and look at the face of Jesus. And the question is, in that moment, will I be ready? In that moment, will you?
<laughs> we said some church up in here. So just go home right now. <laughs>